Mark chapter 10, verses 46 through 52. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, and the son of Timaeus was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was, the, it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. As you just heard Pastor Jeff read for us, we're continuing in the book of Mark, which we'll be studying for the entire school year. And next week, we will read about and learn about a famous passage, the triumphal entry, where Jesus has been on this road towards Jerusalem. Uh, But before that, we have some work to do. Uh, As we jump into the text, the kids are going to head right over here. They'll find the elementary and preschool class teachers. So elementary and preschool kiddos, if you want to head on over. And the kids will join us here in a little bit. (laughs) They're going to head down to their class. Before we find Jesus coming into Jerusalem... Uh, the Holy Spirit has some inspired words for us. There's a story here at the end of chapter 10 that seems like it's dropped in, seems almost like an afterthought, and doesn't necessarily... (laughs) He wants to hang out with us. I don't blame him. The donuts are up here. He's like, why am I going downstairs? They've got goldfish crackers down there. I don't blame him one bit. (laughs) Before we have the triumphal entry, though, The Holy Spirit divinely inspires this to be placed before the story of the triumphal entry. And so God has something that he wants to say to us this morning. He has something he wants to say to us before we reflect on Jesus marching towards the cross. He has something he wants to say to us as we begin the new year. He has something he wants to say to us before we talk about what it means to be Grace Community Church downtown, before it We talk about what it means to go off on our own, have a new name, have a new logo sometime. He has some things he wants us to learn about. He has some things that he wants us to see. As we started with the Nicene Creed this morning, as we look at this passage, as we hear our Congolese brothers and sisters worshiping downstairs, we're reminded that we're connected to something that is bigger than us. Starting next week, we are going to start asking people to let us know if they consider this, Grace Downtown, their church home. Right now, we all belong to one church in two locations, one in North Liberty and one here downtown. But as we go to Sunday mornings, you're going to start to see more changes as we seek the Lord and ask what he would have for our future and our desire to reach the most people for him. And as we do that, we're going to ask people to say if this, Grace Downtown, this specific congregation of people is the church family they want to be a part of. If this is where they want to serve and attend and worship and be stewards of their finances and see God work. But before we do that, 
there's some things that we need to reflect on and some things that the Holy Spirit has to say to us. So as we open the scriptures together, I would invite you to pray for me that the Lord would speak what he would want to say and that uh, he would also speak through our Congolese brothers and sisters that are worshiping downstairs. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to hear from you this morning. Thank you for all the ways that you provided for us in the past year. You answered our prayers. Uh, You watched over us. You provided through uh, triumphs and defeats, through joys and sorrows. And we thank you. God, as we uh, look ahead towards this year, we've already experienced a few days this year, and maybe we've already faced sorrow or disappointment or joys, or maybe we've just felt kind of blah. God, thank you that you're here with us. Thank you that you go before us and behind us. And Father, we would ask that you speak now. We ask that you would teach us what you want us to learn, show us what you need us to see. And God, remind us of what you have done for us and all that you have offered us in Christ Jesus. Spirit, we ask that you would move in a powerful way. God, my prayer for myself would also be my prayer for Pastor Bindo of the Congolese Restoration Church downstairs. God, I pray that we would speak only the words that you prompt us to say. God, as we hear the brothers and sisters in Christ worshiping, we pray that we would remember that you are the God of every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. And God, thank you that we have an opportunity to worship with them here this morning. We ask that you would speak now. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know about you, but as you look at the new year, you probably have stuff you want to get done. Stuff you want to accomplish. Maybe it's things that you want to change or things that you just want to be different this year. And if, also, if you're like me, you look at those things and you start off by saying, I can do this. I can accomplish this. I can make these changes. Fresh start. I can do the things or overcome the things to make this a better year than it was the previous year. But as we start into the new year, it doesn't take us long to realize that there are still challenges. There are still difficulties. There are still disappointments. We've had, this is day seven of the new year. We've had plenty of time to fall on our faces, experience hardships, be disappointed, or just feel like, oh my goodness, I have to go back to work or school eventually. As we open up the scriptures this morning, I want to ask, what seems impossible to you this morning? What seems impossible to you this morning? What situation, what emotion, what thoughts, what circumstances, what relationship seems impossible as you start out the new year? Please open with me to Mark chapter 10 if you haven't already. Um, Nothing will be up on the screen, so I encourage you to open up your Bibles to your uh, Bible app or your physical copy of the Bible to Mark chapter 10. We're going to go back over these verses that Pastor Jeff read for us and we're going to talk about them and then um, make some application for us as a church. Mark 10 46. And they came to Jericho as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus and his disciples and all those that were following him are now on their way to Jerusalem. We've just learned that in the previous passage a few weeks ago. And now they are headed towards Jerusalem. Jericho uh, was outside of Jerusalem and it was also a city, a town that was below sea level. Jerusalem sat 
a few hundred feet above sea level and Jericho is below sea level. So they're about to make a massive trek up to Jerusalem. But before they do, they're going through Jericho and this blind beggar that was obviously known because we know his name and we know who his dad was. This blind beggar is sitting on the side of the road and when he hears that it's Jesus coming by, he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. This is incredible. He somehow knew who Jesus came to, claimed to be, and he also believed it. When we think back, as we've been going through this journey of Mark, we have seen how many religious people and people that had been physically following Jesus for a long time still have no idea who Jesus actually is. They still fail to understand that he is the Messiah, that he is the son of God, that he is the son of David, that he is headed towards the cross. Yet this blind beggar from Jericho, sitting on the side of the road, says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He recognizes that Jesus is who he claims to be. He is the son of David that the Old Testament predicts would come, that he is the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, that would come to deliver his people. And he also knows what Jesus can do for him because he cries out, have mercy on me. He doesn't just cry out, make me see, make my position, my station better in life. He says, have mercy on me. This man recognizes who Jesus is. He believes it and he asks for the thing that he actually needs the most. This is incredible and it's also unique. All these people, including his disciples that don't understand who Jesus is and don't even know how to ask for the right things. He cries out for mercy. Mercy is an incredible thing to cry out for. We just sang it. We just cried out to the Lord that Christ would have mercy, that the Lord would have mercy on me. Mercy is ultimately at the heart of Christianity and at the heart of following Jesus. And this man understands it. In fact, Edwin Judge, who is a professor of history, uh, and specifically first century history, says the Christian understanding of mercy is what God used to upend the world in the first century. A God that would have mercy on people like us was what upended the world in the first century and what really caused the church to grow so rapidly. Let's continue on verse 48. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Once again, the people that have been following Jesus the longest rebuke this man just like they rebuked the children and the people that were letting the children come to Jesus. Why would they rebuke this man for yelling out to Jesus? Once again, even though these people have been following Jesus physically for a long time, he continues to find followers and fans and people that are physically following him wherever he goes all over the known world we see that they don't really understand what he's about. Because this is seen as a distraction, just like the children that were coming to Jesus were seen as a distraction. Some of these people that are following Jesus still think that he is headed towards Jerusalem to be an earthly king. 
to overthrow the Roman Empire, to overthrow maybe even the religious leaders of the day and take his rightful place on the throne. So a blind beggar yelling out right before they're headed to Jerusalem for mercy from Jesus is a distraction to all of that. Why care about one blind beggar on the side of the road when you're headed towards these great things in Jerusalem? So they rebuke him. Let's see what Jesus does, though, in verse 49. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up. He's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and he came to Jesus. Throwing off your cloak may not mean anything to you. It may not mean anything to me. It may sound like maybe he was warm or maybe he was in his way from running. But Historians believe that the cloak, for this blind beggar, he was begging for money and he would collect it by putting his cloak down on the ground. So throwing off his cloak, it really, what we should envision here is he throws his cloak and the money that he's been given aside and he springs up and he goes to Jesus. He leaves behind what he has, his only way of collecting income, and he goes and he follows Jesus. This sounds familiar. This is what Matthew did. This is what the disciples did as they threw aside their tax collecting booth or they threw aside their nets or their ships in order to follow Jesus. Verse 51. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? This should sound familiar to us as well from this very chapter in Mark where the disciples come to Jesus, James and John come to Jesus, where others we've read come to Jesus. And he says, what do you want? What is it you desire? Do you remember what James and John's answer was? Jesus, we want to sit at your right hand in the kingdom of God. We talked about how this revealed what was on the disciples' heart. This is what they were after. The disciples, when they ask, what do you want the most? Their answer glory. We want a position of power. We want glory in your kingdom. We want to sit at your right hand as you have power. So we ask this blind beggar the same question. What do you want? What do you want me to do? Let's continue on in verse 51 and also verse 52. The blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and he followed him on the way. This man is also, his heart is revealed in the things he asks for and the things that he says about Jesus. He calls him the son of David. He asks for mercy. He calls him rabbi, which means teacher. This man is saying, Jesus, you have everything I need. And what I need most is mercy. And I would also like to have my sight back. And Jesus honors them. And in an instant, this man is healed. With a word, Jesus heals him. And what does it say? This man followed him on the way. He left behind his previous way of life. He left behind his begging. He left behind his cloak. He left behind his finances. And he he literally started to follow Jesus. This term, on the way, 
It's not just a physical term. It doesn't just mean he stayed on the physical path that Jesus was on. This path or this verbiage is now going to be used throughout the New Testament. And we read it all over the place in the book of Acts. The way means a follower of Jesus, someone who is on the way. This man started following Jesus, not just physically, but with his very life. We see in the disciples and this man, two different ways that discipleship takes place. We have seen the disciples over and over and over again fail to understand what Jesus is about. And we're going to continue to see them fail over and over and over again, really until Pentecost, until the Spirit pouring out on the church. And then we start to see the disciples, Peter, James, John, standing up in the book of Acts and giving these prophetic words from God. But until then, they deny Jesus, they misunderstand Jesus, they cover their own skin, they're out for their own physical well-being, and they fail to really understand who Jesus is. In this blind beggar and in many others in the scriptures in the book of Mark, we've seen people that in an instant are healed. They believe. They ask for the right things. They call Jesus by the right name. They see who he really is. In this, we see two different kinds of discipleship. Some are healed in an instant and follow Jesus immediately. Some doubt, struggle, and wrestle with God and who Jesus claims to be. At the end of the day, though, both of those groups of people and all of us, if we are Jesus followers, if we follow Jesus, the impossible has happened in our life. In these stories, we can see that whether it's the disciples or those that are healed or risen from the dead and believe him and follow him in an instant, it's a miracle what takes place in these people's lives. I love to hear people's testimonies when they're baptized, no matter what they are. Whether it's, I grew up in a Christian home, my parents led me to Jesus, and now I'm going to get baptized, and I've always been in the church, and I've always known who Jesus was, or the person that has just a scattered history of not following Jesus and getting into all kinds of trouble. Both stories are miracles. Absolute miracles. It is a miracle if we follow Jesus. The impossible has happened if we follow Jesus. If the blindness that we have, the spiritual blindness that we have, if that blindness isn't taken away and we don't see who Jesus really is, then we're never going to see it. It's a miracle. It's an impossibility for us to see it on our own. This man and eventually the disciples are an example of this. When we follow Jesus, we believe Mark 1 14 through 15, where we hear the first words of Jesus in the book of Mark. He says, repent and believe the gospel. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. If we confess that, whether we do it as a child or as an adult, whether we have a a miraculous story or a story that we think is simple, It's the story of repenting and believing the gospel and believing that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Here now, we are briefly going to take a look at this theme 
throughout scripture. This theme runs throughout scripture. God doing the impossible. God making the blind see, making the lame walk, making the dead rise. It is a story that we see throughout scripture. A few examples. We just looked at this on Christmas Eve a couple of weeks ago. When the angel visits Mary and tells Mary that she is going to give birth to the Messiah, she says, how is this possible? For I'm a virgin. I've never been with a man. And what does the angel say to her? Nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. And then in Luke chapter 1, we read this song, this psalm, this meditation of Mary. She says, He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. We read in Luke 138, Mary's response to the angel. The angel said, nothing is impossible with God. Mary's response, may it be done unto me according to his word. Mary says the impossible is possible if God speaks it. We see this idea of the impossible becoming possible in the lineage of Jesus himself. As we look at the lineage of Jesus, as we look at the heritage of Jesus, in the book of Matthew, we see the line of David go down to the line of Jesus. And in that line, in that heritage, in that genealogy, we read sinners and saints alike. We see men and women that were supposed to follow God and didn't or weren't supposed to be a part of God's kingdom and were invited into his kingdom. There's five women in particular in the genealogy of Jesus that it makes no sense that they are there. First, they're women, which were not normally included in genealogies. And then when we look at the Old Testament and read their stories, they had no birthright to the kingdom of God. But God did the impossible and invited them in just like he did for you and for me. Then if we look at the motif of the barren woman who is chosen to miraculously give birth in scripture, there is seven examples in the Old Testament and in the New of women who could not conceive who were barren and God did a miraculous work in them and promised them a child and then provided for them a child. This theme runs throughout scripture. It's in families, it's in birth, it's also in his selection of the Jewish people, to be the people of God. Deuteronomy 7 tells us the qualifications for the Jews to be God's chosen people. Deuteronomy chapter 7, here's the qualifications for them to be God's people. Deuteronomy 7, verse 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. It was because the Lord loves you And is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord our God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. 
Did you catch that? The Jewish people were selected not because they were many in number, not because they were mighty in any way, not because they were special in any way, not because they were always going to do the right thing. Clearly, that's what the whole Old Testament is about. It was because God chose them based on his faithfulness. God wanted to show the mighty nature of his love, the mighty nature of his redemption. That's why he chose the Jewish people, the people that would wander, the people that would wrestle, the people that would doubt. That's who he chose as his people. The God who makes the blind see and the barren woman give birth is the God of the impossible. And if you know Jesus, if you were a follower of Jesus, if the Spirit has unblinded your eyes to see the beauty and majesty of him, then the impossible has happened for you already. So I ask you again what I ask at the beginning. What seems impossible to you right now as you enter the new year? What seems impossible to you that you are facing right now? Here are four things that we can do as followers of Jesus to remember that he has already done the impossible and ask him to do the impossible in the future. Number one, know that you are blind. Know that you are blind. In order to see and be healed and receive life, first you have to recognize that you are blind. That means recognizing that you're never going to figure it out. You're never going to figure it out. Part of me, as I enter a new year, is so optimistic because I think I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to figure out the right schedule, the right workout routine, the right productivity. I take a couple of weeks off over the holidays. I come back to work and come back into normal life. And I find that I'm still there. And I'm part of the problem. And there's also life, attrition, all the things that are going on in life that we can't control. Before we can see, we have to know that we're blind. We have to know that we're not the answer. The blind beggar had given up hope. The blind beggar had given up hope that he would ever see on his own. Or to be able to collect enough coins to make a living. Or that he would ever be included in society. He had given up all of that and it caused him to say, Rabbi, son of David, have mercy on me. It's only when we're blind that we know to cry out for sight. So the first thing is we have to recognize that we're blind. There's two kinds of blindness. The first one is spiritual blindness, where we can't see the beauty of the good news of the gospel. First, we have to see that. First, we have to believe that Jesus is who he says he is and ask for mercy from him and receive it. The second kind of blindness is even sillier than the first. The second kind of blindness is those that have had those scales removed, have seen the beauty of the good news of the gospel, and then go back to being beggars. That's what I fall into time and time again, and I know I'm not alone. We forget that he is the teacher. We forget that he is the one that gives mercy. We forget that he's the one that provides, and we freak out, and we start trying to provide for ourselves again. We start trying to have spiritual strength again on our own, figure things out alone, be healed alone, and forget what Christ has done. So first, we have to know that we're blind. Second, we have to stop trying to see. This man began to cry out 
Jesus, have mercy on me. First, we have to recognize we're blind, and then we have to stop trying to see. We try so many other things. Remember the woman with the issue of blood who had gone to doctor after doctor and spent money after money upon money trying to be healed, and it just made her worse. This is what we do. We're trying to see. We think the next new book will give us the insight we need. We think moving to Sunday mornings will give us what we need. We think having good coffee before church will give us what we need. We think that finding the right worship playlist will give us what we need. The right diet. All these different things that we think will provide what only God can. We have to stop trying to see and start trusting Start asking him to have mercy on us. And that's third. We have to ask for sight. Jesus tells his disciples, you do not have because you do not ask. Jesus also props up and says that the right way to ask is the persistent widow who won't stop pleading her case for justice. We need to cry out and ask God for sight. We need to cry out and ask him to do the impossible. What seems impossible to you right now? What relationship seems so broken you don't even know what to do or you've just resigned yourself to the brokenness of it? What are you hoping to accomplish that seems impossible to you right now? What circumstance, what feeling, what thoughts, what behavior, what addiction What circumstance seems impossible for you right now? What have you given up asking for? If you know Jesus, he has made the impossible possible. We need to ask him for sight. Last, we need to walk in his might. We need to walk in his might. This man was healed. He cried out to Jesus, Lord, have mercy on me. Jesus gave him his sight. This man left his cloak. He left his finances. He left being on the outsides of society, and he just followed Jesus. We need to walk in his might. The disciples, they turned their back on Jesus at his worst moment. They fell asleep while he was wrestling with the Father in the garden. They denied who he says he was as he was arrested. And then days later, they are proclaiming him in the marketplace to their very death. What in the world changed for them? What changed for this blind beggar on the side of the road that he left everything to follow Jesus? What changed is they experienced the power of God. We need to walk in his might. Colossians 2 puts it this way. The Apostle Paul says, Therefore, just as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Rooted, built up, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, accordingly abounding in thanksgiving. Just as we received Christ Jesus. Miracle, right? If we know Jesus, it's a miracle. If we follow Jesus, it's a miracle. If we have been given sight and life, it's a miracle. 
just as we received it, now we walk in it, rooted and established in thanksgiving, abounding in thanksgiving with what Christ has done for us. We need to walk in his might, trusting in his power, trusting in his provision, trusting in the sight and the power and the life that we need, that only he can give. This is what it looks like to follow him. This is what it looks like to see the impossible happen in our lives. So as we turn our eyes towards him, as we remember what he's done for us in communion tonight, I have two questions for you. The first one is, what has he done for you? What has he already done for you? That's just a miracle. What has he already done for you? And secondly, I would ask, what do you need him to do? What do you need him to do? And then ask him to do it. Jesus, thank you for what you have done. Thank you for your body broken for us. Thank you for your blood spilled for us. God, thank you for the new covenant of your blood and your body broken. Thank you, Jesus, for the resurrection. Thank you for the life that you give. Thank you for the sight that you give. Thank you for making the impossible possible. Thank you for doing the miracle of causing a wretch like me to see the beauty, Jesus, of who you are. God, we ask that you would go before us, that we would walk in newness of life, and we would remember what you've done for us. We close remembering who Christ is. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. In Jesus' name, amen. Go in grace. We'll see you next week.